Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we just confess to you that our lives are filled with fears and anxieties. Our lives are filled with hurt, trauma, depression. Our lives are filled with brokenness and grief and sadness. So we bring these things before you, Heavenly Father. And we put our trust in you. That's why we're here this morning. We wanna trust you that by the power of your spirit, you can surround our hearts and lives, guard them by your Holy Spirit, and we can feel that peace, that trust, that confidence, that hope. So that's, Lord, what we ask for. May you open your word to us this morning and show us how much you sustain us and want to sustain us. And we, we will pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. And if you don't know the words, they'll be on the screen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. We are starting uh, the second week here of our series, The I Am, the seven I Am statements that Jesus made in the book of John. Kevin kicked us off here in uh, Clayton in the auditorium last week. This is the first week that we're gonna actually look at one of those statements where Jesus uses a metaphor. And this week it is the bread of life. Now remember that the one thing that we're really looking for each week in this series is when Jesus says, I am the blank, we wanna respond with, I will blank. So we're looking for what are we to do in response to Jesus being the bread of life. So neighborhood question, we're gonna start off with this morning. When you hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life, what does that make you think about? A few months ago, I was, uh, woke up in the morning and I'd had this dream. Now, like most people, my dreams are weird, just like yours. But I, and I usually forget them because they're just weird. And this one morning I woke up and I couldn't forget this dream. It was so vivid. I was, <clears throat> it was with my friend, Matt, and we were in a clubhouse waiting for our tea time, which is really funny because I don't play golf. And... So I woke up and I couldn't get it out of my head. 
I thought about it all day. I thought about Matt, and that, that night as I'm going to bed, I still was thinking about it. So I picked up my phone and I texted him and said, hey, Matt, funny thing, I had this dream that, uh, you know, you and I were golfing, and that's really funny because I don't play golf, and I just want you to know that you're in my subconscious for whatever reason. So he immediately begins to reply back. And Morgan, do you have that? Here's the text. He sends me these two pictures. He says, T, are you kidding me? This was today. Did you have any idea that it's my 50th birthday bucket list golf tournament trip to Pebble Beach, my favorite course in the world? Now tell me God and the Holy Spirit don't have a role in our life and a sense of humor. Isn't that great? And I, I was going to text back and say, I think God was saying you should have invited me along, but that's all right. That's okay. I think things are more connected than we even know. So today what I want to do is we're going to unpack how the bread of life, it's not just one solitary statement that Jesus made kind of in a vacuum. Everything's connected, right? So we have in Genesis 1 through 3, we have this garden and creation and Adam and Eve, right? And then at the very end of the book in Revelation chapter 19 through 21, we also have, guess what? We have creation, a new creation. And we also have a garden in the center of the city of God and, and tree. And here we have a creation and we have also all of these trees. We've got this forbidden fruit. But in the end, we have a feast. And there are actually 12 trees with 12 fruits that each tree has a different fruit every month. Um, and the whole story of God is to get us this whole book, this whole story, this great story, is how do we get from creation in Genesis 1 through 3 to the new creation and eternity in Revelations 19 through 21. And Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that word there, works together, is the Greek word synergeo, from which we get synergy. See, there is a synergy in all of creation that God just put it into creation. And in fact, Albert Einstein, when he was working on his theory of relativity, he wasn't sure that he was right with the theory of relativity because if he was right, it would mean, in this, this theory, it would mean that an atom on one part of the universe could have an impact and be connected to an atom on the other side of the universe. He called it spooky connection at a distance. And some really smart people just won the Nobel Prize here not long ago because they call it quantum entanglement. And guess what? It's true. Things are more connected than we know. You and I are connected. Everything's connected. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, what is he saying? Is this making? No, there's a whole lot more to it, okay? So before we get to the bread of life, I want to give you some back information. So we go back to the garden, and God creates the earth in six days, the universe in six days, and in Genesis 1, 
Uh, we got, no, I'm sorry, Genesis 2, verses 2 through 3. We have it up there on the screen. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. He blessed the seventh day, called it the Sabbath, made it holy. So why did God rest? Did he need to rest? No, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He didn't need to rest. Well, what Jewish scholars tell us, I've been telling you for a long time, is that God knows when to say enough. Think about that. God knows when to say enough. And then in the very next chapter, and we've got Genesis 3, uh, let's take a look at Gen 3, 6. We have Adam and Eve, and they took a look at the forbidden fruit, and they saw that it was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it would make someone like God. So they ate of it. Now, all three of these things are just natural appetites. We have to have food, right? And we, we, things are beautiful. We have an appetite for beauty. That's why we make our homes beautiful. And, you know, pride isn't necessarily a bad thing. It could be a good thing when, it's, when it is in, uh, when it's reined in and kept in the right way. But in this case, all three appetites led Eve to bite the apple, the forbidden fruit, and give it to, to Adam, and he took. Now, let's fast forward to James, okay? So I'm going to go to James chapter 1. And James is trying to explain to the Christians of his day what sin is. And he puts it this way. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires. They're enticed. So it's basically this. Sin is choosing not enough. Whenever we sin, that's what we're choosing. Not enough. Now let's think about that. What does that mean? I was watching, um, I, um, no, let's do it this way. Think about, think about our appetites. And food, drinking, drugs, sex, those are the easy ones, right? All the big moral sins. But those are all appetites out of control. If I'm sliding into bed with a woman who's not my wife, that's a problem. That's an indulgent appetite. If I am, uh, yeah, if I am overeating, if I am taking drugs so that I don't feel any pain or I don't have to deal with the uh, struggles in my life, those are all indulgent appetites. But it's even bigger than that. Just look around you. Let's look at the, uh, the headlines, shall we? I, Wendy and I were reading the Wall Street Journal yesterday. It was a really fascinating article by Peggy Noonan. She was talking about AI, artificial intelligence. And she quotes this guy, uh, Ian Hogarth, who's an investor, a big tech guru, and uh, he wrote in the Financial Times last week about the future of AI. He called it godlike AI. Isn't that interesting? He said it could lead to the obsolescence or destruction of the human race if it's not relegated. He observes that most of those currently working in the field understand that risk, but people haven't been sufficiently warned. Listen to this. His colleagues are being pulled along by the rapidity of progress. 
mindless momentum is driving things as well as pride and ambition. That's an appetite out of control. And it's affecting the entire world. He's saying it could destroy our entire world. Now, another guy uh, is a social psychologist named John Haight, and he writes, this is so funny. He writes, no, first, before I get to that, uh, Peggy Noonan also made the observation that who is one of the biggest tech companies, probably the most powerful tech company in the world? It's an apple with a bite out of it. You can't make this up. So John Haight, and he has a site on Substack, and he calls it, he calls it After Babel. All right? So Babel is the tower way back right after the Garden of Eden, mankind decided, humanity decided, we're going to build this tower to the sky. We're going to be like God. <laughs> and so God had to come down and confuse the languages. So he calls his site after Babel. And he has been studying for years that there is an epidemic of mental health issues, especially in teen, preteens and teens. And in fact, since 2010, the percentage of young boys and girls and teenage boys and girls, depression through the roof, like 181% higher in the last 13 years with boys, 160-some percent higher for girls. Suicide rates are off the charts. And so he's asking himself why. And he says that it began in 2012. And he says, what he's making the connection with is that it is specifically with girls, social media. Because in 2010, Instagram was launched. And then in 2011, Apple put an iPhone 4 in the hands of most of the, the affluent girls around the world. The first camera, the first forward-facing camera on a phone. And what did they start doing? They started taking selfies. Now, but he said, no, but it's not just one correlation. There's something else that's going on. He said, it is not only social, the rise of social media, it is also because parents have become so protective of their children that he puts it this way. In brief, it's a transition from a play-based childhood involving a lot of risks, unsupervised play. How many of you grew up with risky, unsupervised play? Yeah. Yes. Which, which actually is essential for overcoming fear and fragility. Then we, then we took it to a phone-based childhood, which blocks normal human development by taking time away from sleep, play, and in-person socializing, as well as causing addiction and drowning kids in social comparisons that they can't win. And here's the scary part. He said, if you take just, if all you do as a parent is take the phone away, actually the mental health gets even worse because everyone else has the phone. And now their isolation gets even worse. What are we going to do with this? These are appetites. Taking just normal appetites. You give a boy, a young teenage boy, a phone and it's a direct connection to porn, what's he going to do? Get, get addicted. You give a phone with all of these these things, these images of beautiful models, and then you start having popularity contests for likes and all those kind of things. And what happens to girls? Like, they get depressed. They get anxious. 
So what are we doing? It's all we're really doing is it's, it's all about not enough. Now, Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6, I promise you we're going to get to the bread of life. Okay, all right. 6, 6, he said, Timothy, but godliness with contentment. And he preceded this by saying, don't worry about money. Don't worry about wealth. Do not worry about greed. Because godliness with contentment is great gain. Desires, contentment. When was the last time you heard a message about contentment? When was the last time you read a book about contentment? We don't talk about contentment. And in fact, our entire culture, our entire economy is based on being discontent. Advertising is spending millions, with millions and millions of dollars to convince you, to tease you, to tempt you on that phone that I need that. And they're listening to us. They're watching what we're doing online so that they can feed us what they know we're thinking about. Have you ever had that happen to you? Wendy and I can be talking about, I don't know, Japanese gardens. The next day, all of my advertisements are Japanese garden stuff. Appetites, it's all about not enough. All right, I'm losing my place here. I, this last week, where's my kind went uh, on a business trip, and I have been watching um, all of Shakespeare's history plays, because... I'm just weird that way. And I was the only person on the plane actually watching Shakespeare, if you can believe that. So I was watching the histories from Richard II to Henry's fourth, five, and six, and then it goes to Richard III. And it's really interesting, because Henry IV, he kind of stole the crown from his cousin, the Duke of York. And he knew that he had stolen the crown, and so in the play, he's, he's He's bothered by this. He's haunted by it, okay? And that's what, I started making, thinking about that. Because basically, whenever we say not enough, what we are basically saying is, I'm gonna be king of my own life. I'm gonna choose. I'm gonna feed that desire I want. I'm gonna decide who could protect my children. I'm gonna make sure my children are protected. And so, Henry IV, he's wearing this crown, and he just, he says, uneasy. Do we have that, that quote there? Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Why? Because the more we become king of our own life, the worse things are going to get in the spirit. So now fast forward two generations, and Henry VI is a young king. He got crowned when he's nine months old. He's now like 18. Now the, the cousin that had gotten the, king's, the crown stolen from him two generations ago, yeah, they come back. They want the crown back. And Henry VI literally says, you can have it. And he says this, my crown is in my heart, not on my head, not to be seen. My crown is called content. And that's a crown seldom kings enjoy. So what we're really talking about here is when can we say enough is enough? All right. We're going to go back to Genesis. We're getting to the bread life, right? Don't worry, don't worry about it. So now we're going to go to Genesis chapter 14. 
And uh, what's our scripture there? You got that up there? Yeah, 14, 18. This is a couple of verses, just one little verse in Genesis. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Does that sound familiar? Bread and wine. Okay, bread and wine. And he was the priest of God most high, and he blessed Abraham. Abram, okay? Now, all of a sudden, who is this Melchizedek? This is what's cool. This is like a mystery. He just comes in for one verse in Genesis, kind of like Clint Eastwood coming into Sergio Leone's, you know, spaghetti westerns. He just shows up. He's a man with no name. Clint Eastwood come in, show up, got the bad, bad guys, and nobody knew who he was. That's called, I call that the, the archetype of the lone stranger. So Melchizedek is this lone, mysterious lone stranger. But it's important. Remember, everything connects. So how does this connect? Well, we're going to fast forward in the story to Exodus. And now God has his people. Moses is leading them through the, the wilderness. So we've got Moses, and people are hungry. So he gives them manna. Now it's manna. Manna was this. They'd wake up in the morning, and the ground would be covered with this bread. It was a kind of a flaky bread stuff. And so he said this. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Moses said to them, uh, can we go back one slide? There we go. Yep. This is what the Lord God commanded. Everyone's to gather much as they need. Take an omer for you. People said, Israelites did as they were told. Some much, some little. Everyone had just enough. All right, next, next one. But then there were some Dutchmen among them because they said, you, you can't take more than one day. But they said, no, 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 no. I, I, gotta, I gotta make sure I have some for tomorrow. I gotta save up. I gotta make sure that we, got, we got everything. So what happened then? It, began, it became full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. All right, so we've got this manna. Now, all right, now we are going to go to... Um, Something's happening to my hearing aid. Sorry about that. Now, now we're going to go to Jesus because Jesus comes on the scene, right? He comes on the scene and he is the Messiah. Well, here's the thing about the Messiah. In the days of Exodus, when the law was given, only the sons of Aaron could be priests. But then David sits on the throne and they say that the Messiah is going to come from David's line. Well, how could the Messiah be both priest and king if, 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 we, if you have to be a son of Aaron to be a priest and a son of David to be the king? Aha. David, in Psalm 110, says, you are forever a priest in the line of Melchizedek. Before the law was given, there's this mysterious priest king, Melchizedek, and it's through him the Messiah is a royal priest. Wow. Okay, it's all connecting. So Jesus comes, and he is from the sign of David, king and priest. He is tempted in the wilderness. Same three, food, eyes, pride. Same three. He's been, he has been fasting for 40 days. And he says, yeah, make, make the stones bread. And Jesus said, no. Why? Enough. I don't need bread. 
I don't need bread, because Deuteronomy says, you will not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the bread is the word. And then Jesus immediately gets baptized. What happens after he's baptized immediately? What descends when he's baptized? Spirit, spirit. Well, it isn't interesting because in Ephesians, it says, don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the spirit. Word, spirit. Are we a word and spirit church? Yes, we are. See, it all connects. So Jesus, now we're gonna go to John chapter six. Here we go. He has just fed 5,000 people with a couple loaves and fish. Fish sandwiches for everybody. That night, he goes across the lake in the middle of the night. But the people wake up, they say, where's Jesus? They run around to the other side of the lake and they finally catch up with him. Verse 26 of John chapter six. Jesus answered, verily, truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I perform, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, that the Son of Man will give you. Down to uh, verse 30. So they ask him, well, why don't you give us some manna like you did to people in the, in the desert, our ancestors? Go down to verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. The bread is my flesh, all right? And my blood, eat my, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Go down to verse 66, from this time, Many of his disciples turned back and refused to follow him. See, Jesus was talking in a metaphor. But what he was saying is, look, manna? Yes. He gave you manna. But I'm trying to say is stop thinking about the flesh. Stop thinking about your hunger. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then God's going to take care of you. He'll take care of your daily bread. That's what you were supposed to learn back here. Now, this is where I'm going to end. Worship team, you can come on up. I believe that that when you think about it, this entire great story is really about one lifespan. And that lifespan is that of humanity itself. And what happens when when you have a little toddler? Exodus was the toddler stage of, of history. When you have a little toddler, you feed them because they don't know how to feed themselves. You take care of them. But when you become an adult, you have to learn to feed yourself. You have to make your own choices. You have to decide for yourself when is enough. And what Jesus is saying, stop thinking about the flesh. Start worrying about the spirit. So, where does this end? Because I am the bread of life, I believe we have to choose enough. Now that can be one of two things. It could be, hey, that, that appetite you're indulging in, and some of us here are in, in indulging, enough. It's time to repent. It's time to choose enough. And it could also be that, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm not trusting enough. 
So when we come down to take the bread and the cup, we choose, Jesus, you are enough. And I will let the Holy Spirit work with you on what you're supposed to do about that.